powerful name it is. Death could not hold him. If you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the last three verses of that chapter. I know last week Psalms 23 was preached to you. Jeremy talked about dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. Well, we're going to talk about the house of the Lord this morning. Let me read this passage and then we'll, uh, we'll get into it. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. Father, it is such a blessing to to read your word and to see what you have prepared for those who have believed for those who have followed your son. I pray, Father, that this morning as we look at these three simple verses, our hearts will be renewed and refreshed to follow your son as the church of the living God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I don't know if you know your Bible real well, but hopefully you can remember when Jesus was talking to his disciples and he was asking them, who do you say that I am? And he got the, quest, the answer from Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he changed Peter's name right then to Little Rock. And that's where we get the word Peter, Petra. And then he said, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is what we're going to be talking about this morning. It started with Jesus. Jesus had this in his plan. And Paul is pointing to that right now. And Paul writes this letter. We get out of these first two verses. He writes this letter to Timothy for guiding his pastorate and for the church, the church's conduct. We've had three chapters already of very proactive things the church should do. The structure, how they should, how they should build their, their organization in a sense. And then we're going to have, after this, three chapters that are very, shall we say, negative, restrictive. He's going to tell us how to act. And trust me, brothers and sisters, it's very hard to read, and it's going to be even more, less fun to preach. But it's something we all need. So now we get from God right here the why for this letter. Why has he wrote these things? He declares the ultimate purpose of the church in this letter. God's people. It is for the church. And so Paul gives Timothy the purpose and the ultimate reason for the letter's necessity right here. It's nice when a Bible in the book, a book in the Bible, Bible in the book, same thing, I guess. A book in the Bible gives us exactly why the author wrote that letter. John does it in, in, in the end of his gospel. I write these things so you may know the Son of God. So he gives us this reason. And God has purpose. And God has plans for his church. He always has. His people who are called together by his son. That's who he's talking about this here. So what does God give us to aid us in our mission here? Well, he enlightens Timothy and us as to why he leaves us here at this time. 
You know, most of us sometimes wonder, why are we still here? <laughs> why, why don't we get to go to heaven? Well, he's got a purpose and plan, and he kind of gives us some, some and, and I, this morning I've got just a one-point sermon, which every sermon should have at least one. And so this morning, the truth in the mystery surrounding Jesus Christ is kind of the point. I want to reread verses 14 and 15, because here's the, the crux of why Paul is writing this letter, why God has led Paul to write this letter. I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon, but if I should be delayed... I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. See, this letter is not something that we can sit down. I can type a letter pretty fast on my laptop. It's done. You know, even if I write a letter, it's probably done in, in a half hour, if I, especially if it's a long one. I can still. These letters are dictated over days, probably, maybe even weeks. You know, Paul, Paul dictates to somebody, he, he had poor eyesight, we believe, because he wrote, when he did write, it was very large, he, he, he referenced. And so, this thing was dictated, and some point along this way, something came up. And I think it's kind of apropos that it came up right in the middle of the book, instead of at the beginning. But something came up, and Paul said, I need to tell Timothy that I'm not going to get there in, in a way that he needs to understand why I wrote this letter. So he tells Timothy why he's not coming in person. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, he prefers face-to-face -face contact. He prefers to talk to you face-to-face. -face. He revisited most of the churches that he ever planted. So he loves to talk to people first. I mean, today we're so unface-to-face, -face, it's not even funny. I'd rather text somebody than call them sometimes. I'd rather send them an email or whatever. Paul was not that way. That people, those believers, that congregation, that membership that was right there in Ephesus, Ephesus, those followers of Christ that Timothy was pastoring, they would hear now from this letter how to conduct themselves, how to act, how to behave as a gathered body of Christ. So all these things in this letter are for Timothy to teach and the people to follow. They're not just for Timothy. Some people read Timothy and they go, well, that's nice for him. I'm glad he's got all that direction because I sure know it's for us. This letter was read to the church, okay? And, and that's why I'm preaching it to you. So in verse 15, he really, he really hammers on some truths that we need, to, we need to focus on this morning. First of all, he talks about the household of God. Now, that's not a house or a building. The, the word in Greek can be used for both house like of the building and household, like family. And that's what God's talking about here, the family of God. It's not just the building. It's not just an organizational construct. It is you. It is the people who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You know, because one of the promises that God makes to those who believe in Jesus Christ is something we don't probably talk about enough. It's adoption. Adoption. When you get saved by Jesus Christ, you are immediately justified. Your sins are forgiven. You are clean before God Almighty. And you are adopted. You are his child. And that's amazing. We have two daughters that we adopted after they became Christian, not on paper, but spiritually. And they call us mom and dad, and they call our, their, uh, my biological kids brothers and sisters. And it, it was wonderful for them to feel that adoption, to feel that love and connection with us. And that's the way we should focus on this. You are the family of God. The judge took off his robe, stepped down from the bench, and took you home when you got saved. When we are away from this building, we are still the children of God. We are still the church. We are the household of God everywhere, all the time. Everywhere, all the time. 
You are still the household of God. You are still God's church. You need to constantly represent the church. You really need to represent God through Jesus Christ, the living God. By our words, by our actions, by our plans, there's nothing outside the realm of king of kings, okay? If he's the king of kings, he's king of everything. So we need to do that as believers in Christ. And that's what Paul is telling him. As God's household, as God's family, the church of the living God. Now, the word church, we, we kind of we, we attach it to a building. The sign out front says the First Baptist Church of Altamont, and it really is implicating the building. But the church is us. The, church, the word church is a German word. When Martin Luther first translated the, the Latin Bibles and the Greek manuscripts into German, he had a word that was in the German language called kirch, and it eventually became church. And in English, we just attached it to this body of believers. And so we need to realize that it is never, ever the building. It is an assembly. It is a gathering. It is a congregation. It is membership. People who have joined by the blood of Jesus Christ, one under God. That's who we are. And, we, and Paul even goes so far to use the term living God. Living God. You don't see it very often in the New Testament, but you see it all over the place in the Old Testament. Because Paul, when God was talking to his, his Israelite children through the prophets, through Moses, he always used, a lot of times, used the word living God because they were among people who had dead gods. Rock, stone, fire, all kinds of stuff. Living God. We are the church of the living God. You know, today we need to declare that a little bit, I think. I mean, today people just have no idea who God is and what he's done for them. Most of the world assumes God is dead or never existed. Or they substitute a God. They don't even realize it sometimes. They substitute a God. But God is not an invention of man to absolve our consciences. God is not an apparition of life, meaning, giving us meaning. It's not, he's not something we've invented. He's real. He's real. And you can see it in creation. You can see it everywhere. And God is not a being that can die or that it was ever created. He has always existed. I know. That goes outside your brain a little bit. It does mine too. He has always existed. God is the only true God ever to exist. We need to live our lives like that. We are the church of the living God. He is living. He is active. He is involved in our very lives. I hope you see that. I hope you see that every day in your life, that God is involved. He is living and he is active. And Paul's making this very clear to the Ephesians. This is who he's writing to. Timothy's at the church at Ephesus. He's making this clear. And here's why. Okay, It's a city back then that houses probably one of the most ornate and largest temples to a false god ever built. The temple to Artemis, a Greek god who was later adopted by the Romans as Diana, a Roman god, same, same thing, same god of whatever. There was fertility and a whole bunch of other things she's the goddess of. But it was a temple, just a long platform with columns in it, 127 columns, pillars, holding the roof up of this Wonder of the world structure. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, it was torn down a couple of different times, burned down. Eventually, some Christians actually eventually burned it down for good and tore, tore it down. 
But in Acts chapter 19, Paul has this interaction with the, the, the Ephesians, and one of their silversmiths gets all upset because Paul is preaching Christ, and he's afraid it's going to diminish Artemis's glory. And so he creates a riot. They, they form, and anyway, they almost tried to kill somebody over it, but uh, somebody with cooler heads prevailed. But this is in, I think this is in Paul's mind. So this is kind of the context he's, he's telling this to the Ephesians. This past event echoes into Paul's history. This is long after that happened, several, probably even a decade after. And he hears it in the situation with all the false teaching that he is now, and we'll talk about it in the, the remaining chapters of 1 Timothy, all the false teaching that's going on at Ephesus. So he's thinking of that. And, and so God's building now is the temple of his people. His people. We are his house. We are the house of God. There's no physical uh, apparatus required. There are, there are churches all over the world today, right now, this moment, meeting in a basement, in a lean-to out in the jungle, or maybe just under a palm tree in the jungle. Church doesn't require building. It doesn't require air conditioning, although we thank God for it. It doesn't require any of that. I'm sure Texas is thanking God for that too right now. We are the household of God. We are the church. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? God lives in us. As believers in Christ, He lives in us. So our lives need to reflect the glory of God always. That's kind of got to be our focus. And so we, we want to stop right here a little bit and say, why did God establish the church? I mean, obviously we know why, because he wanted to. I mean, that's what God gets to do. But he established it for, for one main purpose that we see in this verse. The, the truth. The truth. The only absolute truth. God, God possesses that. God promotes that. God propels that into the sinful humanity. That's why he left us here. That's why the church exists. Now hear how he describes the church in terms of that truth. We are the pillar and foundation of that truth. I hope, I hope you understand what, that, what responsibility that comes on us, us as a believer. We are supposed to be the pillar and truth, foundation of the truth of God in a lost and dying world that needs a lot of truth right now. So let's talk about the pillar. What is a pillar? Well, most of us think of a column, something holding something up. Uh, my, my house I grew up in was on, on uh, little piles or pillars underneath the house. But Paul's got to be talking about the temple at Artemis. Those 127 columns in that, in that temple were all given by kings who conquered Ephesus or by kings who were part of the Roman Empire. And they would send this column and they would decorate these columns with their whatever, jewels, pictures, reliefs, all kinds of things were put on those things. They were there to honor the God of Artemis and that king who sent that thing. We're to hold up God's truth so everybody honors God, not us. God, that's what we're here to do. We're to hold it up in such a way that we show God off to the world. And one of the best ways to show God off is to tell him about his son Jesus. But I'm going to get to that in a minute because Paul finishes up with that. We are supposed to lovingly but with conviction direct the world toward God. To raise him up. To make him 
primary in our life. The world needs someone holding forth the truth of God's design, of God's plans, of, of God's actions in the world, His purposes. He needs us to do that. So many times people wonder why we're not pro, and you can fill in the blank really, homosexual, abortion, whatever. And sometimes we give them like moralistic answers because it's wrong to kill someone, which it is, or it's wrong to, to pursue that kind of lifestyle. But sometimes we need to remember the answer really is it's against God's design. It's against God's design. From the very beginning, man and woman, from the very beginning, life was precious and still is to God. We need to remember that. That's the truth that we need to be hanging on to. And we need to raise up in a loving and gentle way. We need to point out that. That's why we're here. The church of Jesus Christ is meant to speak truth into the world. That's what we're meant to be here for. And we need to find ways to do it. And then the foundation of truth he talks about here. <clears throat> the foundation of truth. This word could also be buttress, bulwark. It could be a support even. Truth always faces attacks. Truth is always trying to be undermined by sin, by evil intentions. It's always under attack. Absolute truth of God is always facing some adversary. We know it's ultimately Satan and his demon guys, but we also know that in the human heart we seek to undermine truth. I mean, how many times have you rationalized something you wanted to do and undermine the truth you know in your own heart? We, we do it. We shouldn't, but we do it. Artemis' temple was built on a layered foundation. It was actually built over marshy ground, the first one. It was built over some sort of marshy-like area, but they layered the foundation. They layered the, the platform they were going to build on and the ground they built on so that it would not sink, and it did not. That's one of the things that made it such a, a wonder of the world. God's truth contained in His Word is that kind of foundation and better. It can resist all of the quakes shakes, undermining of humanism, relativism, evolution, situational ethics. It can resist them because it is the absolute truth of God. It is what we've built our life on. And when we as God's people, when we live our lives based on that truth, we stabilize a culture. It, it, it's been seen before. And as we begin to give in to lies and errors and undermining of the truth, we begin to compromise, and the, the culture becomes even less stable. We need to press out the truth to people. They may not accept it, and they probably won't. A lot of them will, will not. But the blessings of a solid church is seen in a culture as God deems fit to it, for it to be seen. So there's the purpose of the church of God. We Believers in Jesus Christ are that church. We are to be out there. We are to be seen. We are to be the pillars and the foundation of truth. We are there because of Jesus' forgiveness of sins. It's not just a moralistic effort. We're there because the gospel is there. That's what we are here for, to present the gospel in light of that same truth. Our mission is clear, and every believer is expected to participate. Anybody that says, oh, I don't have to do anything but maybe go to church once in a while. Now, we're all expected to participate in this carrying out of the truth wherever we are. And Paul gets to that truth, that solid truth that we're talking about, the essence of it in verse 16. Let me reread that for you. 
And most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul is pulling a hymn. They, some, most scholars believe this is part of a hymn. Like they had hymns back then, by the way. Um, Jewish people really like to sing. That's the whole book of Psalms. So they, they believe Paul pulled this out of a hymn. Or it could be even a creed or confession that they were, had developed at that time to promote the truth, to kind of be able to synopsize it real quick. Whatever it is, Paul recites it here to introduce it to us, to Timothy and them. They may have heard it. They may not have heard it. But Paul's adding some validity by putting it in Scripture. It's not just a man-made thing anymore. Now it's divinely inspired. And so we do, would do well to learn it. Paul introduces it with a word that's used only here in the whole New Testament. He introduces it to speak of the unity that's in that context, in that content right there. If I was to reword this, and I'm not a, a Greek scholar, but here's the way I think we could say it maybe in English that would give a little more fuller meaning to the whole thing. Most certain, this is a common confession of the church about the mystery of gaining godliness. Most certain, this is a common confession of the church about the mystery of gaining godliness. That's what Paul's trying to introduce this with, where he says, and most certainly the mystery of godliness is great. Godliness. <laughs> this word here, I saw so many different interpretations of it. Because it's pretty broad, but it really speaks to almost a religious type activity, um, more like a duty that, a, that humanity has to God. We need to pursue godliness. We need to gain godliness. The God who created humanity. It's something we must go after. But it's no longer a mystery. That's the wonderful thing. Paul talks about it as it used to be. To the Jews, it was a mystery. They knew God was going to send a Messiah. They didn't know how, why, when, where, what. They didn't know what he was going to do. They just knew he was going to send it. It was a mystery. It's been a mystery for ages. And now it's no longer a mystery because it's revealed in Jesus Christ. So let's see this mystery unfold right here. This really is a great capture of Jesus' life, right? I mean, from, from birth to ascension. So first of all, line one, he, Jesus Christ, came in the flesh. We celebrate it every Christmas the incarnation of, the, of God Almighty. He appeared as a human and he lived for 33 years on planet Earth, a perfect life. God became man. God became man. Fully God, fully man in Jesus Christ. Only by human flesh, and this is what we, we sometimes fail to understand, only by human flesh could the sins of humanity be absolved, could be atoned for. They had to be a perfect human, and the only perfect being is God, so he had to become man. He came to redeem the lost. His son came to do just that. And God's truth in God's Bible stands on that fact, Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus Christ came, died, rose for our sins so we could forgive, be forgiven by God. The whole Bible stands on that. He came as fully God, fully man. That's line one. Line two, Christ was vindicated, declared blameless. Now, he never even approached sin, but that's why he was vindicated. He was vindicated by 
the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. That's how Jesus got alive again. Jesus didn't pull himself up by his bootstraps out of the grave. God raised him using the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit raised him up. Therefore, he vindicated the fact that Jesus' life, death, burial, satisfied God's wrath. The Spirit could not have raised Jesus from the dead if he had sinned because that was the eternal punishment for sin. So Jesus didn't sin. The Holy Spirit raised him. That's the Spirit's testimony. He vindicated Jesus by raising him. And our salvation, <laughs> brothers and sisters, our salvation rests on that, on the spotless Lamb of God, on the perf perfect person of Jesus Christ. Only by his blood can we be forgiven. So the Spirit vindicated him. The third line, Jesus incarnate raised was witnessed by angels. Boy, angels are everywhere in Jesus' story. In his life, his death, his resurrection, they saw him raised. Now, the, the angels may have known, God may have told them, hey, I'm going to raise him. But till they saw him, I'm sure they were kind of going, hmm, I wonder how this is going to work out. I don't know. I'm not an angel, so I wouldn't know how they reacted. But these angels, these messengers, they spoke of his birth to shepherds, to Mary, to Joseph. They spoke of his birth, aided his ministry, heralded his rising. They were there. Why do you seek the living among the dead? And they were there for his ascension. He will be back. The angels were very important to this. They testified. They testified because they saw him. That's a great testimony. And we have that testimony. And their testimony ignited the apostles. Man, the apostles were like motivated by that and, and others who saw that. And, and that fire spread all over the world. All over the world. That's line number three. Line number four, Jesus Christ has been preached. And at this point in Paul's life, he could only assume that he'd been preached to most of the known world because of the common languages of Greek and Latin back then. So he, he, was, he was basically, it's not an exaggeration, but he was like, he was preached among the nations. He didn't say all the nations, but among them. Paul is not saying everyone, but to the known world. And now we seek to add to that. Because there are... Hang on to your hats. There are 24,000 people groups in the world. That's a difference in language, a language that would be a barrier to the gospel from another language. 24,000 people groups in the world, people who speak a different language that would require someone to learn that language before they could communicate the gospel to them. Praise the Lord. Out of that 24,000, we only have 3,000 left to reach. There's 3,072 3,072 out there that have not ever heard Jesus Christ. They've never seen the, a Bible. They can't, some of them don't even have a written language. So we got missionaries on the field looking to come up with ways to create a written language for these people so they can write the Bible so they can talk to them about the gospel. It's a wonderful thing, but it's hard work. We seek to add to that number, preaching among the nations. The fifth line. Faith has been expressed. People have believed. Starting with the 3,000 at Pentecost and then 2,000 or 5,000 more, depending on how you want to go a few weeks later. It has been out of the sin-soaked world that Satan had control over, God has saved billions and will save many more. Believers have come. And hopefully you're one. And if you're not, we'll talk about that in a minute. 
We never know who will believe when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not clairvoyant. We're not prophets. We never know who's going to believe. We may never know in this life. Billy Graham has said that. He said, I, I, I don't know if even 20% really did accept Christ. I bet he's up there now finding people he didn't know whether they accepted Christ because he didn't know them all. We never know who's going to believe when we share. We're only called to share. And we need to count how many times we share versus how many people get saved because we're not in control of that part. That's God's part. We're just in sales, as they would say. He's in manufacturing. We, we just tell people. That's what we do. We tell people. That's who, what God counts. God counts how many times we share. He, he wants, to, wants us to propagate the truth of Jesus Christ so people will express faith in his son. And in line six, we finish the, the hymn up. Jesus is in glory. He's in heaven. Jesus went home, back to where he was, next to God Almighty. Next to God Almighty, the creator of all the universe, sits our Savior, who intercedes, who mediates, who provides for us. Now, if that doesn't bring you comfort, brothers and sisters, I don't know what will. The one who lives in your heart, the one who changed your heart, the one who died for your sins, he's sitting right there by God. And anything we need, anything we ask, he's going to voice it to the Father. He's mediating and interceding for us all the time. He's our great high priest, as the book of Hebrews says. He's the one who atoned for us. That should bring us comfort. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is our Savior and our brother, by the way, because we're adopted, remember? So we're joint heirs with Christ. Our Savior lives. That's a, that's a truth we need to probably pound in our heart a little harder sometimes. Our Savior lives. And, as Bill Gaither said, because he lives, I can face, and you fill in the blank, mostly you can face the fact that you will not have an eternity in hell. That's what you can face. Trials, tribulations, doubt. Your security comes from the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. If he did not rise from the dead, we would not be saved. And this would be a pointless exercise and we could all go home. But he did rise from the dead. And the church, us, we, we're here to proclaim. We're here to proclaim by our words, by our lives, by our devotions, that Jesus Christ came to save souls. That's what he came for. He said that, not me. That's what he came for. Now we're the hands and feet of Jesus doing the same thing getting the word out there so they can be saved. And that's the pinnacle of all God's truth is that very fact. God's household, this family, needs to represent Jesus Christ to the world. That's why we're here. We must give it out fully. Turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, verses 36 through, through 43. I want to read to you a sermon, short, short excerpt of a sermon. Peter preached to a room full or house full of unbelievers. The house belonged to Cornelius. He was a Roman centurion. He was a, a, not a believer, but he, he feared God, they said, but not a believer in, in the, the essence that we understand. Peter's there. God has sent Peter there by a vision, and Cornelius has went out and got Peter, and so they were pushed for both hands by, by angels, by visions, to go to meet up. Peter shows up. He, he comes into this house full of unbelievers. And this is what he says to them. Acts chapter 10, 
verse 36 through 43. He sent the message to the Israelites, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know the events that took place through all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil. That's us, by the way, too, okay? You didn't escape that. Because God was with him. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem, and yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. There were about 500, by the way, if you wanted to count. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one. Appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. There's the bottom line. We want people to receive the forgiveness of sins from God Almighty through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the message. That's the purpose. You know, we can, we can put all kinds of other things in a, in a church functions, but we need to be telling people that they can be forgiven by the God of the universe, that He will not hold their sins against them because His Son has already taken them to the cross. Have you ever looked for forgiveness or joy or peace in any other place or person? Most of us probably did before we became a Christian. We've looked for it somewhere. We've tried to find some sort of solace. And Peter tells us there is salvation in no other name. That the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue will confess that he is Lord. You know, I hear some people claim that they're a Christian, but they don't need church. They have no need for church. And since COVID happened, it seems like a lot of people really believe that. But also since COVID, some have returned. People have returned to the church because they could not find real truth anywhere else. They couldn't find the real truth anywhere else. It's not out there. And if these verses right here do not convince you that church is important, that a gathering of believers being connected to them and serving with them is not important and has no purpose, think on this one thing, though. If you hold to your Bible, understand this. Paul wrote 12 letters to churches. John, the apostle, wrote four letters to churches. Peter wrote two. James and Jude each wrote one. That's 20 out of 27 books in the New Testament that are written to churches. That's 75% of our New Testament. So when people say they don't need the church, believers say they don't need to come to a church, they don't understand that that's where God wants them. None of us are perfect. There's no perfect churches out there, trust me. Once I joined them, they weren't perfect. But. So if a church is not critical to our saved life, why did he write these letters? Because the church is important. 
for the church. That's why he wrote these verses here, for the church. So from these two, I guess from these verses, I want, to see, I want us to see two distinct truths this morning, kind of as a, in a way of application before we, we're done, to apply it and to make it a priority in our life. First of all, those of us who follow Jesus, who profess faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, for our forgiveness, we are the church. You can, you can kind of say that over and over in your head. I am the church. I am part of the church. We are the church. And you and I, who are the church, we're God's family. And anywhere we go, any place we visit, any time of day, always and forever, we're representing Christ as the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not talking about just this church, First Baptist of Altamont, but the whole kingdom of God. We are representatives, ambassadors, as Paul says in Corinthians, ambassadors for Jesus Christ to the world. We represent the church of God, the living God. Our lives, our plans, our actions, we must integrate them. We must involve them in Jesus. We must use his truth to guide us always. He wants to use us for his eternal purposes. Because remember, there's only two things that last forever. Only two. The word of God and the souls of men. That's where the church needs to be focused. So first of all, we need to do that. We need to follow Jesus and profess that we are the church. His salvation of our souls means our work, our play, our service flows from a heavenly perspective. We're free from the world's ideas. We're free from their pursuits. We're free from living out the way they want us to live. We are called to an eternal lifestyle. Grace that saves is also grace that changes us to seek the kingdom of God. Seek first his righteousness, Jesus said. And all these things will be added to you. And Jesus died a very horrible death for the souls of the church. And that very fact must change the way we believers live our lives, the way we treat others, the way we seek right over wrong, the way we be the church. Because Jesus died for us. The second truth I want you to look at this morning and remember is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come here to just give us a bunch of moral ideas. He came here to die and rise to save sinners, period, die. Our faith is in Jesus, what he did, why he did it, how he did it, for whom he did it. And all of us that are believers, we know this. You know this. You know this for a fact. This is why you're here this morning. This is why you trusted in Christ. This may be why you've joined a church. You know what you're here for. So don't be shy or scared to tell others about Jesus Christ. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter whether they accept it or not. You need to be telling them. That's what we're called to do. We don't need to be shy of that. You, you cannot, I've heard this before, but you cannot push anybody away from Jesus Christ by your testimony. You can't say really anything wrong if you're talking about the story we just talked about, this, this, this creed that's here. That Jesus came, lived, and died, and rose again. You can't push anybody away from the kingdom. If they reject your story of Christ, if they reject your testimony, that's on, that's on them. You've kept your responsibility, which is to share. Speak these truths, and you will never cause anyone to reject Christ. Christ. 
Remember I said earlier, it's about sharing. Count the sharing, not the saving, because God's in charge of the saving. And, and the story we tell is captured in this, this creed here, or this confession, if you want to call it that, a, a, a hymn fragment. But I want to talk about creeds for a second, just because I think sometimes we may get off track about them. But some creeds men have written are good. There's a lot of them out there. They're helpful. They kind of synopsize our beliefs, our primary beliefs. That's all good. We use a, a, a statement of faith called the Baptist Faith the Message. And it's one that was created in 1925 for the Southern Baptist Convention. And it's pretty solid. It's a statement of faith. Not something you need to memorize, but something that you can go to to find out what the Southern Baptist churches believe. But you know what the best creed is? The best creed out there is God's Word. It's the Bible. And yes, there are parts that are hard to understand, and I understand that. I, I, I completely understand that. But I think Paul is quoting a fragment of a, of a creed or a hymn that's probably, there's some of it, I think, scattered throughout the rest of 1 Timothy. Like chapter 2, verse 5 through 6, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. That, I think that's part of the creed that, that Paul's using here. And then chapter 1, verse 17, he says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, <laughs> be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, there's a, another couple of verses, 15 through 16. He says, He, Jesus, is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal power. Amen. You start putting pieces together like that throughout Scripture. There's a lot of them. Paul uses them in different places in different letters. You, you, get, you get the idea of what you're supposed to be doing, what you're supposed to be believing, and what you can tell people. Hear, hear these. I, I ask you to hear these. These are your confession of faith. You have the gospel. You need to tell the world. If you're born again, you need to be telling it. So we need to let these truths kind of wash over us. Because I think sometimes we forget why we're here. You've been born again. You're here to serve the true living God as part of his church. Now, I want you to think on this as I wrap this up, as we get set to do our pastoral prayer. I want you to think on this a little bit. Last year, I was praying about what God would have me do and preach through the next year. And I kind of do this on a regular basis, and it's just an overtime thing. But as I was praying about it and, and of course, also being burdened about our church in this little town, what we can do to encourage what we should do. And God led me to, these, to preach on the church through these three books, 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy. He led me to do that. And uh, he did because he says we can be better. We can do better. I can do better. We can all do better. And the Spirit pressed on me as, as I did this that the culture out there needs churches who are pillars and foundations of truth. They need us to stand on the truth that is in Jesus Christ. And this only happens, really it only happens when God's church truly lives his truth in the middle of the culture. We don't need to be isolated. We don't need to be barricading ourselves in. There's plenty of ways we're going to learn in chapters 4 through 6 of how we live out our faith and how we treat people and how we don't treat people. It's going to get kind of gnarly at times. But here's the thing. Our focus cannot be political. 
Our focus cannot be cultural. Our focus really can't even be just moralistic. We can't just worry about people doing right things because that's not going to get them to heaven. Our focus has got to be proclaiming the gospel, getting the word of God out there as the gospel of Jesus Christ who provides forgiveness of sins for everyone who will believe. The gospel must permeate our services, our ministries, everything we do. We need to be trying in some form or fashion to help people understand that they are a sinner and they need a savior. Anything less than that really is just charity work. It really is. I mean, feeding someone without feeding the gospel to them as well is just feeding our ego sometimes. It's good to do those things, but it's, it's also important that when we do those things, they know the truth we, we believe and the truth and the, and the true reason why we're doing these things. Because Christ, who saved us, called us to do these things. So let me say it once more. If you have never trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of all of your sins, I would ask that you please do so now. If you are here and you have never trusted the saving power of, of Jesus Christ, you're invited right now. If you need an invitation, here it is. You're invited right now where you are to put your faith in Jesus Christ. To forget all other sources of comfort, all other ideas, all other concepts that have flooded your mind about what is right and wrong and cry out to Jesus. He's the one that can save. He's the only one that can save. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will be saved. The Bible's clear on that. There's no doubt. We're going to have a time of pastoral prayer and I would say during that time, pray that. Talk to God. Ask Him to change your heart. Seek now. Because today he can be found. Today is the day of salvation. So as we go to our pastoral prayer time, I would ask that if you don't know Jesus, to pray. Ask God to, to help you, those of us who are believers and part of the church, ask God to help you know where you need to stick your neck out for Jesus. Because we need to stick our neck out a little bit more. We need to be out there a little bit more, talking to people about the truth, the blessed truth of forgiveness of sin. Because that's why we're here. That's why he left us here. So let's have a time of prayer. We'll pray silently for a few minutes, and then I'll close us out. Let's pray.